Hello everybody and welcome to the third installment of the Agze Daily Friday podcast. I'm Caitlin, I'm the editor and curator for the Agze Daily newsletter and the site, and I will be your host this week. We're super excited to have you guys back for another week. We know we went on a little hiatus, but we're back for the long haul now. So we're going to start with a few notes on media. If you guys read the newsletter, you know sometimes we have little pieces about media and how they report on certain things. And then our big segment today will be on the Syria ceasefire that began on Monday. So just to start off, a few notes on media. If you guys are listening and also paying attention to the U.S. elections this year, you'll notice there's been quite a few comments on the media, which is all well and good. We should always have very vigorous national discussions on whether or not the media is reporting what we really need to know and whether they're reporting it correctly and with the the right amount of detail and all that good stuff. The only thing that I would caution is that generally the media is one of our great barriers against overreach. It's kind of a barrier against foreign propaganda or foreign influence and it's really important for a free and functioning society like we have in the United States. So we do need to, I don't want to say have respect for the media, but to kind of take it into account that this is part of our society and it's part of what makes our society so amazing and so free and so transparent. So here are a few tips that I've collected from people much smarter than myself on how to kind of read the news and how to get the most out of it. So it's always good to read multiple sources. Obviously, you should not just be reading just the New York Times or just the Wall Street Journal or just Fox News or just MSNBC. You're going to only be getting one point of view. And for anyone who tells you that there are unbiased media sources, they are incorrect. That doesn't exist. People are people. People are writing these stories. You have to give them a little bit of leniency, I think. Obviously hold them to a high standard. But also know that it's a human being writing that story and they have opinions. No matter how well they hide them or how well they don't hide them sometimes, they do have opinions. And you have to not let that get in the way of the story. Just because you read something you don't like, it doesn't mean that that information is incorrect. So oftentimes we read things, we say, oh, that's not right. And we write it off and we say, let's just pretend that's not true or let's just say it's not true because it feels wrong. Well, a lot of things, especially in foreign policy, especially in international affairs, feel not necessarily like the truth when they are. It rubs us the wrong way. Sometimes when we read about things that people in our own government are doing, but especially when we read about things that people in other governments are doing, we oftentimes don't really understand or we don't think it sounds right. And so we say, oh, it's just the writer. Oh, they don't believe in the same things I believe in. But we have been raised and born into a certain way of thinking and seeing the world. As Americans, we see the world kind of from a position of power and that lends our thinking and our views on media and our views on how the world works in a much different way than 
how most of the world thinks the world works. So to be conscious of that, there's nothing wrong with that. We're very lucky to live in the place we live in. But just to be conscious that that is happening means that when we read the news, we can understand other people's perspectives. We don't have to agree with them, but to understand them so that we can understand their motives. We can understand why they're doing the things we do. they do and understand how we might not be getting along with them or how we are getting along with them and the language that we use when we talk about them or talk to them. Those things are all really important. You know, everyone has to use the power that they have and you have to create power or the illusion of power where you don't have it. A good way of thinking of the international system, and this isn't always necessarily exactly how it happens, but most governments are doing everything they can to get a bigger share of power. And there is a finite amount of power in the world. In the state system, you know, there's only so many decision makers. There's only so many places you can conquer. There's only so many governments you can influence. There's only so many big powers that you can be allied with. There's only so many weapons you can acquire. And all these countries, for the most part, are doing what they can to get a bigger share of power. Now, power doesn't mean the same thing to every country. And some countries, like Costa Rica, they don't have a military at all. But they're pretty powerful in their region of the world. They're fairly wealthy. They're fairly peaceful. They're democratic. They make good decisions. And so they wield influence there. And that's been a good decision for them. For the United States, I wouldn't recommend that we get rid of our military. I don't think that would increase our share of power. I don't think that would increase our security. And so that's a different decisions that we have to make and different, a different point of view that we have. And so that's a good kind of oversimplified way of looking at the international system, but it's a good jumping off point to see why are countries doing the things that they're doing? And when we can understand why they're doing the things that they're doing, maybe it would be better at countering them if we need to counter them or allying with them if we need to ally with them. Understanding what they're doing and understanding how they're doing it would make us better at kind of parsing out if they're going to be a thorn in our side, if they're going to be a threat to our security. And those things are all really important. And we've kind of lost sight of those other perspectives or our own failings, our own weaknesses in a system that is oversaturated with players. Okay, so to move on from our little notes on media, we're going to go right into the serious ceasefire deal. The ceasefire started on Monday. It was brokered by the United States and Russia, who are two of the main actors in the Syria civil war, which seems kind of weird because it's called a civil war. I don't know if that's correctly classified because there is a lot of foreign influence there, but for now we'll call it the Syrian civil war. The ceasefire, like I said, started on Monday. The UN is having some problems delivering aid. That's been the main story. I think I would challenge you guys to go find what you can on that. Go find statements by John Kerry. Um, Go try to find what's actually happening on the ground because those are the stories that will impact whether the deal sticks or not, not whether humanitarian aid from the UN is getting in. Now, as a side note to that, The people of Syria are suffering greatly, and this aid is something they really, really need, especially in Aleppo, which has been kind of back and forth jockeyed 
parts of it between government forces and opposition forces. And if you've looked at any of the pictures from the Syrian civil war, your heart will just bleed for these people. They're living in some of the worst, most violent conditions you could possibly imagine. Actually, most of us or probably all of us cannot imagine those unless we've actually lived through it. In the United States, we've never lived through that. And so just to put the foreign policy on hold for a minute, I really ask that you guys think about the human element of it just a little bit. Um, we've seen some callousness towards those people as maybe bad actors, and some of them probably are. But just to remember that for the vast majority of these people, they were just living their lives and they happen to be born in a country where their leader doesn't really care about them very much. So just keep that in mind. That's a little side note. doesn't really have anything to do with the actual ceasefire. But anyway, the ceasefire, like I said, was brokered by Russia and the U.S., which is kind of interesting. We'll come back to that. There's growing accusations of violations on both sides. So Russia and the U.S. back opposing sides, but Russia has used a lot more muscle in their support. They back the government side, Bashar al-Assad, who's been in power for a long time in Syria, and he is wildly unpopular there. The civil war in part was sparked by some protests that wanted him to leave, and so... The U.S. has been supporting, kind of weakly supporting, opposition forces, which is an overarching umbrella for a wide myriad of diverse, kind of small rebel groups. This includes, opposition forces technically includes a couple groups that are terrorist organizations or have links to terrorist organizations, which has made it incredibly difficult for the U.S. to be on their side. You have to kind of parse out as a country who has laws and follows the principles of democracy and is not a sponsor of terrorism, you have to kind of parse out these groups and figure out which ones you really want to back. And we haven't really been able to do that successfully so far. That's one of the main sticking points with the ceasefire is that Russia and the U.S. cannot agree on which of these rebel groups have links to terrorist groups and which ones don't. So two big tenets of the deal are that the U.S. and Russia are supposed to be managing the disengagements of both forces, the government forces and opposition forces, from Castello Road, which is in Aleppo. It's one of the main kind of sticking points. Both forces are there. They aren't really moving. It's basically just stagnated there on that road. And... Both sides have said they are leaving, but the Pentagon has not been able to verify if either side is leaving at this point. So we're kind of stuck in the dark there. Journalists have been on the ground since the ceasefire started on Monday, and we've gotten conflicting stories out of there, so I don't really want to say concretely that anyone's moving. My guess would be that some people are kind of meandering away from the situation, but that for the most part, both sides are looking at each other saying, you blink first. So another part of this deal is that if it works out, if the ceasefire sticks, the U.S. and Russia will start joint strikes against ISIS and the group formerly known as News Front, which has kind of rebranded, but they're basically the same thing still. 
And this will only happen if the ceasefire sticks. And something that's interesting about this is that, one, like I said earlier, the U.S. and Russia can't decide which groups are linked to terrorism. So who are they going to strike? And also, Russia and the U.S. are backing opposing groups in the Syrian civil war, but working together to defeat another group, ISIS, which sounds kind of good, but probably isn't the best idea. So basically, Russia has been running airstrikes in Syria, and so has the U.S., hitting targets that are different from each other. Russia has been hitting targets that the U.S. would never hit, including opposition groups, including the Kurds, which are allies of the United States. So if you really want to break it down into general groups, there are four sides to the Syrian civil war. The government forces, rebel factions, which is the opposition, the Islamic State, and the Kurdish YPG militias. So the a lot of the rebel factions are aligned with the United States. Others are aligned with the Islamic State or are independent groups that support terrorism or are extremists or have an agenda that we can't really figure out. The Islamic State's basically on their own and the government is backed by Russia. But somehow the U.S. and Russia have come to some mysterious deal that hasn't been released to the public that says they will do joint airstrikes against a group, but they can't agree on who that group is aligned with in a country where no one can get any information on the ground. The U.S., which hasn't really used full muscle and is backing opposition, um, isn't really making a huge dent in a kind of ambiguous goal in Syria, which is peace, maybe democracy, maybe just nobody shooting each other anymore. We don't know if the U.S. would require Assad to leave to come to a peace deal. I can tell you that this probably... Like 99.9% sure that this or will be on the desk of the new president in January. So who knows what our end goal in Syria is, which is a really interesting point because how do you make a ceasefire? How do you make deals on airstrikes if you don't really have an end goal, if you don't have a strategy, if you don't have some political end goal. What would we define as victory in this Syria situation? Is it Bashar al-Assad leaving? Is it nobody shooting each other anymore? Is it having humanitarian aid? Is it the whole thing burning to the ground and we rebuild it ourselves? Is it another Iraq situation or an Afghanistan situation where we send boots on the ground and try to fix all the problems and top of the government and blah, 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 whatever. We've all seen that happen a million times. So we don't really know. It hasn't been laid out for the public really clearly. That may be on purpose. It may be because we don't have an end goal. It may be because it's not a priority for the current administration. Neither presidential candidate has laid out 
any sort of feasible plan for Syria for their administration. So we really don't know what we're getting with either one of them. So it should be interesting to see how they deal with it. I can probably guess that it's going to be a continuation of whatever we're doing right now, which is ineffective airstrikes. You have pilots carrying their loads back to base, not dropping them on targets. We don't have intelligence on the ground there too much. Not any that we can see. Assad still seems to be completely unbending in his call for the government to have power in all parts of the country. And this kind of ceasefire, this deal to be friends with Russia, even though we don't like what they're doing in Syria, to work with them in Syria, to me, reeks of legacy time. Every president and their cabinets do this. State Department Secretary of State John Kerry is coming to his end as Secretary of State, and now it's time for legacies. Now it's time for, well, what did you do in the history books? And We have accepted this as part of the American culture of changing administrations peacefully, and that's amazing. Democracy is awesome. But it also means that we have a change out of people every four to eight years. So we change some of our policies. You can make the argument that foreign policy mostly stays the same administration to administration. There aren't huge, drastic changes immediately upon the arrival of a new president, which I would agree with. There probably won't be huge, major, drastic changes. The military will not drastically change its structure or its personnel. So we can see a kind of continuation of this. We'll do something but not enough or we'll do something but not a lot mentality. You could see this kind of mentality as a symptom of severe backlash against over-engagement by the previous administration, so W, his over-engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq. You see this backlash against it, so now no one wants to get engaged anywhere. And so you see this kind of mentality of the military won't fix our problems. It's kind of a stopgap measure until we can negotiate something. Well, That's not necessarily the case. Maybe in modern day, we could take that lesson from some of the mistakes we've made. But honestly, negotiating out something in this situation is never going to come to a good thing for the United States. Because Bashar al-Assad is going to stay in power. We're going to reach a peace deal. We're going to leave. The monitors are going to leave. The boots on the ground that we claim we don't have, but we do, are going to leave. Special forces. We're going to turn our back. We're going to turn to the next foreign policy thing. And Assad is going to gas his own people like he was doing before. He's going to kill them. He's going to beat down on the Kurds with his air force. He's going to do whatever he needs to stay in power. This has been kind of long and rambly. But the main points that I'm trying to make here are that the U.S. and Russia have negotiated a ceasefire deal that if successful, will come to them doing joint airstrikes against ISIS and other terrorist groups, which they cannot agree on what are. The U.S. and Russia are backing different forces in the Syrian civil war. Russia has made clear their end goal, what they define as victory in Syria. We have not, and this is hurting us. Even if you don't like 
what we may eventually say is victory, at least we have a goal. And right now we don't have a goal. There is nobody saying this has to happen for us to be victorious. This is what we need. We need X, Y, and Z, and this is what our, to use a not so good phrase, this is what our red line is and we won't cross it in. This is the end game. We haven't done that. We don't have a strategy. We've gotten pulled in slowly, 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 little tiny agreement by little tiny agreement. And it's just really not working out for us. Now, do we have to be involved in Syria? Probably not. Syria is a quagmire at this point. If we don't have a strategy, we should leave get a strategy, come back, or stay and get a strategy now and just execute it. The military is very good at their job. They they really are. They're very well-trained, very smart people. So we should use those resources that we have. So to conclude, we should really be holding our public officials accountable for having a clear and transparent strategy I don't need all of the details, that's not necessary, but I'd like an end goal, and I think you guys deserve an end goal too, your voters, your taxpayers, and that is something that's necessary in foreign policy is to have a goal. Now, that goal can change, and that's okay. We should never be stuck in one position. We should never be, you know, demanding things that are no longer needed or not demanding things that are needed. So we should definitely be constantly evolving and assessing conditions on the ground and assessing what's going on and what's changing, what's staying the same and what's degrading. But we do need an end goal. So that was a long roundabout way of saying that. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's podcast. Next week, hopefully we're going to do a in-depth look at Afghanistan, which is the longest war, the endless war some people call it. And we're kind of going to go in-depth into what's going on there and who is still there and what are the actors at play and how the U.S. could change our strategy there, how we could keep it the same, how we've been successful, how we haven't been successful. It should be a really interesting conversation. And we hope you tune in for that as well. Happy Friday, everyone. If you've liked the podcast, please share it with friends and family or with classmates, bosses, peers, workmates, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is in your life that you need to share some foreign policy thoughts on. If you have any questions or concerns with the podcast or any critiques or anything, please send them to agsadaily at gmail.com. If you aren't already signed up for the newsletter, you can sign up for that at agsadaily.com as well. And we really encourage you guys to go out and find your own foreign policy news. You can sign up for Google Alerts. I love Google Alerts. Just be informed, guys. It's really awesome when you start learning about all these things and you know what's going on in the world. And you can have informed conversations and you can teach your friends and family about stuff. And you can really feel like you're rooted in the world and you can feel like you can maybe vote on that or make a difference or demand that your public officials are also informed on foreign policy because it's very important and it affects all of us. 
Thanks so much for listening. We will see you guys next week. Bye.